Well, I do want to say happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers in this room. I hope this is a day that you are doted on well um, and that by God's grace your kids actually behave accordingly. That might be the best gift of all. Uh, my own children, they have an affinity for Mother's Day and Father's Day. Ivy May, our oldest, was born on Father's Day three years ago. I mean, Ford was born a day after Mother's Day last year. So if you've done the math, you realize that Ford's birthday is coming up this Tuesday. For those of you that are wondering, he will take Amazon gift cards. You can just give those to me. I'll make sure he receives them. You see, there's so much fun in getting to celebrate your children's birthdays. Especially in those early years. That first and second birthday as you make that cake for them and set it before them and just wonder, what are they going to do? Are they just going to go face first into it or have some kind of polite etiquette and just kind of peace at it? You know, I know those challenges of the early years are figuring out what to get your kid. You're trying to find that perfect gift for them even when they're only one and two, when they can't even communicate what they want. You're trying to find that perfect doll, that perfect Duplo set, the perfect dump truck. And that excitement builds as you hand that present to them. And it really just ends up being you unwrapping the present for them. But if your kids are like ours, and maybe you've had this experience and you don't have kids, but you've seen other little kids do it. As they're opening the gift, all of a sudden they could care less about the gift. And rather, they care about the wrapping paper, or the box, or the bag that it was put in. They look at that paper and they just like, I want to put that in my mouth. And so there I am looking at my cute kids, just wondering about myself. Dude, you're missing the point. It's not about the bag or the paper, but it's about what's inside. It's about that time and the effort that I put into finding that perfect gift. It's about how that gift is but a small token of my love and affection for you. Today our text highlights people who miss the point. In comparison to a woman who sees what it's really all about. We'll see the chief priests and scribes. And Judas missed the reality of who Jesus truly is and what he's come to do. And we'll see the dinner guests, the disciples, miss the point of this woman's gift. They do not see it for what it really is. A gift that encompasses adoration, love, and faith. What I want to do this morning might feel a little different than we've done in the past I'm going to walk through our text section by section and then kind of come back around and really look at these comparisons that we're going to see evident in our text as we work through, okay, what does this mean for us today? You see, chapter 14 begins a new literary unit in Mark. It's often called the Passion Narrative. As chapters 14 and 15 Come to fruition what Jesus has been talking about time and time again as he shared that he ultimately came to die. Our text sets the stage 
for this two-chapter section. And in a sense, you could think of this section as, as three large images. One in the middle and two on the sides. And oftentimes, like any painting, your eyes are going to be drawn to the middle. As we read the woman anointing Jesus. And this is the dominant thrust of the chapter. But we must see that middle section in light of the surrounding darker images. As we look to the left and to the right, we see the chief priests and scribes plotting. And we see Judas striking a bargain to betray. We see pain and sorrow. And in the midst of that, we see beauty. So let's walk through each of these sections. Mark 14, verses 1 and 2 says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So our scene opens two days before the festivals of Passover and Unleavened Bread. This would be an an eight-day festival, one day for Passover and seven for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Ultimately celebrating the Exodus story of God saving and redeeming his people out of slavery in Egypt. And the reality is many Jews from all over Israel would pilgrimage to the city to celebrate. Scholars and historians believe that somewhere between 200,000 to 300,000 people would come into the city for this festival. And so it's understood that this city would be four or five times its normal size during these eight days. So it's in the midst of this overcrowded city and these festival preparations that the chief priests and scribes have gathered together, seeking out a plan to arrest and kill Jesus. And yet, as our text communicates, they don't want to do it during the feast. Because they realize with the size that the city is at this moment, overcrowded, they're not going to be able to find that moment of isolation where Jesus is by himself. So therefore, they set their eyes towards arresting Jesus, biding their time. Yet little did they know that it wouldn't be much time at all before the opportunity presented itself. Section 1. And then we see Mark just kind of abruptly shift the story. He shifts the reader from inside Jerusalem to now outside the city, to Bethany. From those who want Jesus dead to those who are wholeheartedly following Jesus. Verses 3 through 9. And while he was at Bethany... In the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. 
But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. For you always have the poor with you. And where, whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. We see Mark once again building on this theme that's been present throughout the book, this insider-outsider motif. We're in Bethany, outside the city. We're at Simon the leper's house, outside of Jewish society. And a woman anoints Jesus, a woman who remains unknown, unnamed, an outsider. And it's the unlikely outsiders who see Jesus for who he truly is and act accordingly. In Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper. And we can infer from Mark's reference to Simon that realistically this man would be known to his readers. Yet obviously for us, we have no reference to who this Simon the leper is. Yet we can note that Simon the leper is much more of a nickname that realistically points to his past than his present circumstances. Because due to cultural customs, there would be no way that a leper could actually host a meal because he would be unclean, would be ostracized from the city as a whole. And so there they are, Jesus, his dinner guests, realistically his disciples, and Simon. Lounging and having dinner when this unnamed woman walks in. She makes her way over to Jesus, breaks a flask, and pours all of it over Jesus' head. This scene would be a breach of etiquette. For within Jewish customs, a woman was not to enter the fellowship of men unless she was serving food. And again, we see this is no ordinary anointing. This is more like a drenching as she bathes him in all that was in the flask. Breaking it to never be used again. And this act by the woman comes as a complete shock to the disciples. Yet you realize their shock was not actually in her breaking the customs, but rather the shock was in the gift itself. It was in the ointment's value. You see, a denarii was the equivalent of one day's wages. So what did she do? She poured 300 days' wages, pretty much a year's salary, where the ointment was poured on Jesus' head. Many commentators believe that this would have been this woman's heirloom, passed from mother to daughter, generation after generation. The disciples didn't know what to do with it. They were indignant. The verb used for them scolding her actually means to snort or to roar just shares a little glimpse of their frustration and confusion. Their shock and indignation permeates the room because they believe there's a better use for that money. Could have given it to the poor. Would have stretched that money farther. And yet we see Jesus lovingly rebuke his disciples. 
and he applauds them for it. What they saw is the waste Jesus saw as beautiful. He redirects his disciples as he says, you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you do not always have me. What's Jesus trying to communicate? Is he trying to say that the poor don't matter? That we should neglect the needs of the poor? Not at all. Rather, Jesus recognizes that the poor can be catered to at any time. Ultimately, he's saying this side of heaven, there will always be the poor. But there will not always be me with you. Jesus is drawing the attention to this specific moment in redemptive history. Just as Jesus in Mark 2 told John the, John the Baptist's disciples that my disciples do not fast. Because why would they fast when the bridegroom is still with them? Jesus is ultimately telling his disciples in this specific moment in time, what this woman has done is actually more important, is more significant than giving that money to the poor. Jesus' imminent death is the prime consideration. Do not lose sight of that. The woman's gift is appropriate precisely because of the time and place in which it was given. Why? As Jesus said, she was anointing his body for burial. Jewish people view burial of the dead as a very important and sacred event. And part of the standard practice would be washing the body and then pouring perfume on the body, commonly being nard. By Jesus' pronouncement, he actually indicates that he knows he's going to be suffering from a criminal's death. For it is the criminal in society that is not bathed is not given the proper rituals of having perfume poured on them. They're not seen as worthy of that. So it's in the midst of these circumstances that Jesus says, he's preparing me for my burial. In the midst of this beautiful story about faith and devotion, we once again see the underlying weight and tone of the suffering Now, once again, Mark shifts the reader abruptly away from Bethany back into Jerusalem. As we pan over to the last section, Judas in Jerusalem before the chief priests. 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Mark does not provide us with any specific motive for why Judas did what he did. But John's gospel on a very similar story informs us that Judas was actually the one that oversaw the money bags. And we're told Judas was prone to take some from that money bag as time went by. 
And yet, regardless of the motive, in verse 2, we see the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus. And in verse 11, we see Judas sought to betray Jesus. Again, in the midst of this section as a whole, we see pain and sorrow on the outside. There's something beautiful, the sacrifice of faith in the middle. We see the heart of this passage flushed out through the means of contrasting characters. In this Markin sandwich, the middle section juxtaposes the bookends, the pieces of bread on the outside, the images of darkness. Our eyes ought to be drawn to the comparison of the people we see. As readers, I believe we naturally are going to see that comparison between the unnamed woman and the scribes and the chief priests and Judas. Looking at the outside and the middle. And yet I think if we actually look within the middle, we see another comparison. And that's the woman and Jesus' disciples. Ultimately, within our story, I believe we see three responses. And as we walk through these responses, we need to be asking ourselves, who am I? What of these responses speaks to me and where I'm at? How would I respond if I were in this story? And what does that say about my view of Jesus? Three responses we're going to walk through on. You'll see them on the screen behind. One, those who want Jesus dead. There's this feeling of contempt. Two, the one who loves and adores Jesus. Faith. And number three, those who miss the point. This indignation and confusion. So number one, those who want Jesus dead. So the bookends, the pieces of bread of the sandwich, highlight those who have a contempt for Jesus, a contempt that leads to wanting to arrest and kill him. And if you've been with us for a while or read Mark, you know that the chief priests and scribes have been trying to plan this for quite a while. This is an ongoing struggle. For they see Jesus as a blasphemer, a challenger of their power and authority. They don't see him as the Christ, but rather someone to be crucified. And we have Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples, arguably an insider of insiders, who for some reason desires personal gain and wealth that trumps his desire for Jesus. I mean, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Judas made his choice. Maybe you're here this morning and your sentiment towards Jesus echoes that of these men. Maybe you believe Jesus has failed you. He has not met your expectations. He is not who he says he is. Maybe you believe he demands too much of you. 
And you cannot give that much authority of your life over. Maybe you're here this morning and you have too many masters you are trying to serve and bow down to. The master of wealth, notoriety, education, success, sex. These things reign supreme in your life. But I think if we're truly honest and start to look at those things, we see those masters aren't actually satisfying. They demand so much from you. Take, take, take to honestly receive very little in return. Satisfaction is fleeting. We need more and more to achieve that same high of satisfaction and contentment. And so if you're here this morning and that's your heart, praise the Lord that you're here. Praise the Lord that you have joined us. And I urge you to keep coming. Listen and hear who Jesus truly is. See that he is actually worthy of all authority in your life. Especially in the coming weeks as we walk through this passion narrative, we see what Jesus did for you. I want you to turn to Jesus for he does not take from you, but rather gives you rest. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. For where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The chief priests scribes and Judas, their contempt led them seeking to kill Jesus. The very people who were the scholars of Scripture, the very people who were anticipating the Messiah, missed him as he stood right in front of them, day in and day out. I think even one of his own disciples missed the point of Jesus' life on earth. Their contempt for Jesus led them to plot to seek and kill. We see the betrayal of Judas, this intimate insider, juxtaposed with the love, adoration, and faith of the unnamed woman. The one who loved and adored Jesus. In the midst of a time of betrayal, of crisis, of impending suffering, we see a beautiful display of love and adoration, a display and sacrifice of faith. Of all the characters in the story today, apart from Jesus, the unknown woman, the outsider, would be the least likely example to understand discipleship. But in actuality, she's the only one who actually gets it. Her faith in Jesus was displayed through love and adoration as she poured a year's worth of nard on Jesus' head. And he applauds her for it. He even states, again, at the very end, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And yet, we're not told her name. In the book of Mark. Mark does not want us to focus on who she is, but rather what she did. Jesus rejoices in her motives behind her action. She places her faith in Jesus. A faith that leads to an act of adoration and love. And it's an extravagant gift. 
we ultimately see the whole of her identity encapsulated in this gift. The act of preparing Jesus for burial will forever be remembered. I believe Jesus is calling us to be like this woman. And though I recognize we cannot do the specific act, for it was a specific place and time in which it needed to be done. But we can embrace the heart posture and motive that led to this action. See, in reading and rereading and studying this passage, there was one line that Jesus said that really stuck out to me. It stuck out because it kind of felt odd in the midst of the story. I couldn't move past it in my mind. It's that first half of verse 8. It said, she did what she could. She did what she could. I see at the heart of faith, the heart of love, the heart of adoration in action is doing what you can for Jesus. Faithfulness is doing what you can for Christ. And, and for this woman, what she could do was pour a year's salary worth of ointment on Jesus in preparation for his burial. And as stated, because of this redemptive moment in history, we know Jesus is not calling us to do the exact same thing. But we can emulate her heart posture. Out of our faith in Christ, we do what we can for Jesus. And this woman shows us there is no half measures. She broke the flask and drenched Jesus. It's her holistic total offering to Christ. She broke the cultural norms. And if we notice, she gave it all with no expectation of something in return. She did not give to Christ so that she can receive from Christ. She actually gave to Christ because she already had him. Her faith led to this as a form of worship, a thank you and amen to God. So what is Jesus calling you to do? Doing what you can for Jesus, again, doesn't necessarily mean spending a year's salary. But it could mean for you. Doing what you can for Jesus is ultimately your faith in who Jesus is and what he has done in action. I think of a few weeks ago when Josh preached. And he talked about the widow at the temple. And I believe we beautifully see a couplet from the widow at the temple and this unnamed woman. For Jesus recognizes both of these women for their gifts and their faith. One gave a penny and one gave a year's salary. The widow threw everything she had into the treasury and this woman poured everything she had on Jesus. Though the amounts in monetary worth differed greatly, the heart value did not, for they both did all that they could for God. You see, faith and discipleship are not the hypotheticals. It's not what we hope we might be able to do, what we hope we might be able to give, 
No, we see faith and discipleship are actually concrete realities. They're who we are and what we're able to do. And there's so much beauty in these stories. Because we see when one acts out of faith and adoration and love, that no gift, not even a penny, is meaningless. And no gift, not even a year's salary, is wasted. Seems like the Jesus parable of the talents, this is like a real life example of it. For some he gives five, for some he gives two, for some he gives one. And it's not how many talents he gives you, but it's what you do with that talent. All done rightly for Jesus is beautiful. It's never a waste to God. So doing what you can for Jesus... That means showing up on Sunday mornings, gathering with God's people, even though you had a tough weekend and nothing in you wants to come. It means confessing your sins before your brothers and sisters or going to that brother or sister who you hurt to make amends. Doing all you can might mean being intentional in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your classroom. Getting to know people there with the desire to build a relationship to be able to share Christ with them. Doing what you can might mean pouring all of your energy into your children. Showing them the love of Christ in word and deed. Sharing with them the beautiful truths of Christ. It might mean giving your two pennies. It might mean giving a year's salary. It might mean leaving this, your extended family for the sake of the gospel and going to the mission field. But it might mean staying with your family, even though they're really difficult, because they need the gospel. They need reconciliation. Doing what you can for Jesus means being faithful to God with what he has given you. I'm currently taking an intro to missiology class in seminary. And one of my assignments is to research various missionaries and to write this, these synopsis on them. One of the missionaries I decided to research was Jim Elliott. Uh, Jim Elliott's from Portland, Oregon, so you know I needed to rep the Northwest a little bit. The reality is Jim Elliott is known more for his tragic death than his life. He died at 29 years old. Jim Elliott and four other men set off to minister to the Wadani tribe, this violent and aggressive people in Ecuador. They hope to share the gospel of Christ with them. They spent a lot of time and effort learning the language, sending gifts, preparing for these encounters. But upon their very early encounters with this tribe, within a week from first contact, all five men were speared to death. It's a heartbreaking story. And yet it's beautifully redemptive. For within two years' time, Elizabeth, his wife, and a few other people were actually living in the Wadani tribe. They were actually building relationships, sharing Christ, seeing many come to Christ. And this once violent and aggressive tribe actually sought peace 
And Jim's journal that he kept as he read scripture prepared for the mission field, uh, he, he wrote this quote that is often used and stated. He famously wrote, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim saw that it was never actually about him. It's actually always about Jesus. It's about giving what you can, which in Jim's case was his very life for the sake of the gospel. So whether this is giving up your finances, giving up your time, giving up your very life, we can stand secure knowing that we cannot lose Christ. As Paul said, all things are rubbish in comparison to the knowledge of Christ. Yet sadly, doing all you can for Christ doesn't always make sense to fellow believers and definitely doesn't make sense to the watching world. And this reality leads us to the third response in our story. As we see the dinner guests, realistically Jesus' disciples, being indignant because they actually missed the point of this woman's absence. When the dinner guests saw what this woman did, they were shocked and outraged. They saw denarii after denarii figuratively being poured over Jesus' head. And they couldn't help but vocalize their anger. Why was the ointment wasted like that? What a waste. They looked at this woman's actions, this gift to Jesus, and did not see it as socially productive. Overall, they saw the greater benefit of worth would be giving it to the poor than pouring it upon Jesus. Yet the humbling reality is that in claiming there is better use for that money, they're actually demeaning Jesus. For they do not regard Jesus as worthy of such extravagance. Yet Jesus corrects their viewpoint. For what the disciples saw as waste, Jesus saw as beautiful. Do we act like the disciples today? Do we miss the point? Do we look at other Christians' lives and think, what a waste? This text challenges us to ask, how much is too much devotion to Christ? I mean, a little oil is probably fine, but Lord knows you better not pour that whole thing. That's just too much. Are we prone to judge other Christians based on what they do for Christ? How they spend their time, their talents, their treasures for the kingdom of God. One practical way in which I've seen this in my own life is my many conversations I've had talking to people about myself going into ministry or hearing other people processing the options of going into ministry doing the internship at the branch, or joining a mission trip for our summer trips. Many of these people have Christian parents or Christian influences in their life. And oftentimes there's people that actually try to dissuade them 
from the ministry, from this trip. There's no money in ministry. You'll never be able to provide for your family. Or I don't want you raising support. There seems to be an underlying embarrassment with asking people for funds. Or take advantage of the education you have. Take it to the workforce. Or specifically with the internship. I mean, this year will ultimately be a waste for you. Other people are going to graduate and get a year's work of workforce under their belt. And what will you have? This isn't a resume builder. And this is from fellow Christians. Missing the point. Why do we look at other Christians' lives, specifically elements of their lives that can feel extravagant for God, and think they're wasteful? This challenge has been, I mean, this passage has been challenging for me this week. You see, because as I began to process through ways in which I'm prone to question people's actions for Christ, it quickly led me to begin processing through my own actions, or rather, lack thereof. What truths lie behind my proclivity to judge other Christians' actions? As wasteful? Am I prone to judge others' actions for Christ because I don't actually want to deal with my own issues, my own lack of devotion to God? Doing an inventory of how we use our time, our treasures, and our talents speaks into this reality. It's an indicator of our view on waste. Do our views on waste hold us back? Do we not want to do what we can for Jesus as the woman did? Because ultimately, if we're honest, we see those actions as wasteful, just as the disciples did. I mean, do we not prioritize gathering together on Sunday mornings? Because it doesn't feel like a productive time. I could stay home, listen to better worship, hear a better sermon. And you know what, with the sermon, because it's online, I could probably go at 1.2 or 1.5 speed. Talk about productivity. Do I view faithfully giving to the church as a waste? Is your self-defined optimal level of comfort viewed actually as more important to you than the mission of the church? Do we not read scripture or pray because we don't have time? Is it always that thing that I'll get to later? To realize that later never comes? Or Annie's singing about tomorrow, yet it's always today, never tomorrow. If we're honest with ourselves, do we not give our lives away for the sake of the gospel because we just don't know if it's worth it? We'd rather hold on. What do you view as a waste? And what is that thing that's holding you back from faithfully doing what you can for Christ? Friends, do not miss the point. These things are not about our productivity over a waste of time or resources. Rather, these things are about a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Knowing him and glorifying him. 
And yet, those who place their faith in Christ, we can cling to the words of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul ends and he says, those who are in Christ do not labor in vain, because all that you do for Christ will never be in vain. And we know this because of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Throughout this entire story, we cannot escape the reality of what is to come. This story of a woman's unashamed devotion to Jesus is couched in between these men's desires to destroy, to kill. In the midst of rejection and judgment and imminent death, we see beauty. Seeing the response to Christ within our story calls us to look to the cross. I think of the old Negro spiritual that asks, where were you when they crucified my Lord? Powerful, powerful question. And yet arguably, a more important question. What was going on inside you? When they crucified my Lord. I think many in the first century and today look at the cross and say, what a waste. Jesus led a three-year teaching ministry as he proclaimed the kingdom of God. Only to be betrayed by one of his best friends and crucified on a cross. End of story. Nobody wants to follow a dead Messiah. Why waste Jesus on the cross? And yet what by many then and now was seen as a waste is actually something beautiful. It's the very essence of beauty is Christ crucified. It's beautifully life-giving and life-transforming. The world needs saving, and Jesus is the only one that's actually capable of doing just that. For as Jesus' life wasted away on the cross, as he relinquished his breath and his blood, he breathed new life into us. He gave new blood in our veins. The very shame and scorn of the cross is the very beauty and power. Faithfulness is doing what you can for Jesus, for he did everything for you. The response to the gospel is awe, devotion, faithfulness. He bought you with his blood. He pulled you out of the miry muck and placed you on solid ground. He took us who were once aliens and sojourners and brought us into a family. Gave us a home, gave us a people. He took those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, literally a waste, and made us alive in him right before God. Friends, don't miss the point. Don't be like the chief priests and scribes and Judas, who could not believe in a Messiah like Jesus, so they pursued him to death. And don't be like the disciples who were indignant at this woman's offering. 
seeing it as ultimately a waste. Brother, friends, may we be like this unknown king, this outsider who came before Jesus and did what she could with him. She laid it all before him, for he is worthy of our all. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the beauty of your scripture. We thank you for texts that challenge and yet comfort us. And ultimately, God, we thank you for the cross, for what one sees as a waste, we see as life itself. In your name.